If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. And before we get started today, there were a couple of fascinating articles in the New York Times this past week that I want to share with you. The first was an article about how flossing, as in flossing your teeth, has never been shown to be effective for preventing cavities or periodontal disease. Now, for those of us who have suffered through trying to train ourselves to floss daily, this might come as somewhat of a shock. However, as I thought more about this, I realized that the one thing that flossing is pretty effective at is removing small bits of food that happen to be stuck in your teeth, and I think I will continue flossing for that reason, if for no other. But it made me think, man, those dentists are really adamant about how important it is to floss. They are always telling us to be flossing daily and how important it is, and yet there's no evidence for that at all. But it's a good thing in medicine, we don't have that problem. We're never telling patients to do things that have no evidence. And of course, I'm being sarcastic. In fact, that is exactly what the second article is about. It was uh, released in the New York Times on the 3rd of August, and it was titled, Why Useless Surgery is Still Popular. And fascinatingly, it talks about a few different surgeries. It talks about spinal fusion. I'm going to read this paragraph to you here. It says, take what happened with spinal fusion, an operation that welds together adjacent vertebrae to relieve back pain from worn-out discs. Unlike most operations, it actually was tested in four clinical trials. The conclusion? Surgery was no better than alternative non-surgical treatments, like supervised exercise and therapy to help patients deal with their fear of back pain. In both groups, the pain usually diminished or went away. These studies were completed by the early 2000s and should have been enough to greatly limit or stop the surgery. This is according to Dr. Richard Deo, who is a professor of evidence-based medicine at the Oregon Health and Sciences University. Pretty good position to be making this kind of statement. But not only did it not happen, there's a recent report out that shows rates of spinal fusion actually increased after these trials. This article goes on to talk about a New England Journal article in 2009, which showed results of a trial at looking at vertebroplasty, comparing it to sham surgery, and found there was no difference, no benefit beyond a sham surgery in doing vertebroplasty, and yet the rate of this surgery also continued to rise beyond 2009. And finally, this article talks about the operation of a meniscus repair. So having your meniscus in your knee repaired if it's torn. And 
points out that multiple trials, again, have shown no benefit from this surgery compared to sham surgery or compared to physical therapy. And so this is how one of these physicians they interviewed, Dr. Gordon Guyet, who's a professor of medicine and epidemiology at McMaster University in Ontario. He wrote an article, an editorial in the British Medical Journal, and what he suggested is this. He says, I personally think the operation should not be mentioned to patients, adding that in his opinion, the studies indicate the pain relief after surgery is a placebo effect only. But, he says, if a doctor says anything... This is what he suggests a doctor should say when talking to a patient about having meniscus repair. Quote, we have randomized clinical trials that produce the highest quality of evidence. They strongly suggest that the procedure is next to useless. If there is any benefit, it is very small, and there are downsides, expense, and potential complications, end quote. Now imagine if you told that to patients how many would choose to have the operation. But of course, that's his point. He doesn't think anyone should be choosing to have this operation, and he doesn't think that any insurer should be paying for it. So really interesting stuff. There's so many things in medicine that we are adamant about, just like dentists are adamant about flossing. We insist that they must be worthwhile. We insist that we think they should be done, and yet it turns out there is little or no evidence to support them. Sometimes there's even evidence to refute doing them. It takes a long time in medicine for us to catch up, and I think it's worth all of us keeping our eyes open and thinking hard about what we do and what we recommend to patients. All right, enough of my soapboxing. Let's move on to the main event for the day. And today I'm very excited to have with me Dr. David Mintz, who is one of our fantastic neuroanesthesiologists here. Also found out recently that he went to Brown. I did too. We overlapped by one year, though we didn't know each other there. And he's coming on the show today to talk to us about a very important topic and something that's definitely board eligible in terms of questions you might find. And he's going to talk to us about air embolism. Remember, you can always leave comments on this podcast or any other by going to the website at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. And you can email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. All right, I'm going to say hello to Dr. David Mintz. Hello. I'm very excited to be doing my first podcast. And the topic of the day is air embolism. This has historically been the province of neurosurgical anesthesia because of seated craniotomies, which place patients at very high risks for that. Those of us who grew up doing a lot of seated craniotomies have managed a lot of air embolisms. These days, the seated crany has given way to the uh, park bench position, which is popular here at Hopkins, but seated cases are still done um, here and elsewhere, and there are, other manif- there are other scenarios in which air embolism occurs, so it's still a germane topic. Uh, And it's one of those things that can kill your patient just like that. So those are always things that we should keep an eye on. So the scenarios in which an air embolism could occur and should be suspected are basically any time a vein is higher than the heart. Uh, And in particular, the risk factors involve great veins, veins that are uncollapsible. Um, So those veins uh, can be found, for instance, during central line insertion. This is the reason why, as an intern, you're taught to put your patient head down for insertion or removal of the central line. Um, In neurosurgical anesthesia, there's a particular risk because the uh, venous sinuses in the brain are adhered to the walls of the dura, and thus they they are tented open. They don't collapse very easily. But other organs can have this too. When the uterus is mobilized uh, during a C-section, there's a risk of air embolism. Again, large veins in a structure that's uh, held above the heart. Uh, From time to time, it's reported in liver surgeries. Again, the same risk factors. 
Uh, it's occasionally reported in open shoulder surgeries where, while there aren't necessarily the same caliber of veins that are involved, the extreme distance between the, the height of the shoulder and the heart may be more relevant. Um, so how do you know that your patient might be having uh, problems related to air embolism? Well, there are sort of two flavors of air embolisms that occur. One is when air actually completely occludes outflow from a PA or, or even from the entire right heart. And as you can imagine, this presents as immediate and sudden and complete cardiovascular collapse. The second flavor is when smaller bubbles enter the uh, pulmonary circulation and the response is sort of analogous to a pulmonary hypertension response um, that's local. It doesn't involve the entire lung necessarily. That is typically seen as a decrease in cardiac output, but not a complete collapse, hypotension, tachycardia. Um, so if you're in a setting in which there is some risk of air embolism and you find yourself um, struggling to maintain perfusion for the patient, that's when you should suspect it. So ordinary monitors, what would you see? Tachycardia, hypotension, possibly a decrease in the end tidal CO2 um, under conditions of steady ventilation. So beyond that, there are specialized monitors, and this is sometimes a board's testable topic. So the absolute gold standard monitor for having air in your heart is echocardiography, TEE in particular. Um, most operative settings other than cardiac surgery, where, of course, de-airing the heart is part of the protocol, um, this is not really practical. It's not really practical in most craniotomy surgery, and it's simply not thought of in most other settings, uh, even where risks are high. So the field has developed other monitors that people can use. The second best monitor, and a cost-effective one commonly used in neurosurgical anesthesia, is a precordial Doppler. So precordial Doppler is placed um, between the second and third intercostal space uh, on the right side of the heart in a patient who's sitting bolt upright. In a patient who's inclined, that position tends to wander, and you really have to go looking for it. You have to find it. I advocate that when you place one of these, you should test it by instilling a little bit of air that's been um, mixed up in saline, because if you don't prove that the monitor works when you actually want it, it may not work. Um, and it would be appropriate, that is the most appropriate monitored place anytime you're in a high-risk setting. Other things that are available and that have some sensitivity and specificity, the um, PA catheters can be placed for this purpose. Uh, but, of course, if the patient has other reasons why they might have an increase in pulmonary pressures, then the value of the monitor is diluted. Um, end tidal CO2 is a weak marker. Uh, again, only valuable when there's no other reason there would be a drop in end tidal CO2. Greater specificity, uh, but not available here at Hopkins, is monitoring of end tidal nitrogen. So there's nitrogen in room air, and if you run your case without any room air, then your patient should have no nitrogen dissolved in their blood. Um, and thus, a mass spec-based monitor that's reasonably sensitive can tell you that you're in training air. So... What should you do if you suspect you're having an air embolism? In the short term, the care is essentially supportive and communication with your surgical team is imperative and recruitment of more help is imperative. So the very first thing you should do is either if you can reach your attending immediately, do that. 
If you can't, you should call anesthesia stat because you will need more hands in the room. Even highly experienced providers will call for help in that circumstance. Um, the second thing you should do is you should make your surgical colleagues aware because the best hope for the patient is that they can stop and training air. And in all of these surgeries, they should be well aware of the measures they need to take, which include flooding the field with saline, uh, neurosurgery is typically using bone wax, um, and heavy use of electrocautery. You should then communicate with them about changing position for the patient. So if you can bring the site at which you're in training below the level of the heart, the bubble that's there will still be there, but you will stop in training more air, and you may leave yourself in the flavor that had more to do with pulmonary hypertension and not progress to the flavor that involves complete loss of cardiac output, which is much preferable. Um, so once you've communicated with your surgical team, and probably at the same time, you should open your fluids wide up, you should discontinue the use of nitrous oxide, which is frequently run in neurosurgeries because that can enlarge the bubble that's already there. Um, you should give epinephrine or another inotrope. Phenylephrine is an ineffective choice of medication in this situation, or fairly ineffective. The best you could hope is that it would recruit more fluid to the right side of your heart, but it also increases your afterload. And frankly, it doesn't address the problem, which is that you have to push the work, the heart to work harder to increase the cardiac output. And in particular, you have to push the right heart. Giving phenylephrine does not do anything much for your right heart. Um, and indeed, it can be a pulmonary vasoconstrictor, which may even be counterproductive. In the venous beds that you're now depending on to get your cardiac output out, the ones that are unobstructed and unaffected. Um, other things that you can do, um, the use of jugular vein occlusion. Um, so if you put a finger over the jugular vein on the side that's being, uh, where air is being entrained, assuming you're doing a craniotomy, you can, uh, you can decrease the amount of air being entrained while also showing your surgeons where the bleeding is. In other words, as you put pressure there, the increase in venous back pressure should create bleeding from the sites that are still open in the surgical field. Um, other things that can be attempted, if you already have one, you can pull back on a multi-orifice catheter placed in the right heart um, or at the junction of the right heart and the vena cava. Uh, or if you don't have one, you can place one and attempt to make progress. The literature on that is sort of spotty, and it was a common practice for all seated craniotomies at a certain point, but no one has ever demonstrated any particular benefit. That having been said, if your patient is dying, it's probably a reasonable response. Um, so the, the, the goal of this is essentially to suck air out of the heart, and the way in which it's done is a catheter with multiple holes, kind of like an epidural catheter, is placed centrally and threaded to the point where it would... Um, it would actually come in contact with the air. Um, beyond the scope of this lecture are the techniques you actually use to do that. Um, in terms of other interventions, if your patient has no cardiac output, don't forget that the appropriate thing to do in all scenarios is CPR, and chest compressions are critical in this setting, and chest compressions have been shown um, by TEE to actually break up bubbles in the heart, and they may relieve an airlock if one exists. So that's pretty much it for the intervention section. Um, and 
just remember, this is one of these things that if you don't think about it, you're not going to catch it. It's not a frequent event. In fact, it's a very infrequent event, but it's the type of thing, um, like an anaphylactic reaction, that should always be in the back of our minds in the right scenario. Do you have any questions or comments, Judd? I do. Thank you so much, Dave. That's fantastic and a really important topic. A couple things uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on. You mentioned end-tidal nitrogen, and this is something that uh, I've definitely seen come up uh, both on in-training exams. I may even have had a question on my board exam on it. And while I think you mentioned we don't do it here at Hopkins, and I don't think we did it where I trained either at UCSF, but for the purposes of uh, an exam question, if you were running less than 100% oxygen, how would that play out? What would you see in terms of your end-tidal nitrogen monitor, and what would happen if an air embolus developed? Okay, so end-tidal nitrogen. Um, in board exam questions, often they ask about sensitivity and specificity. It's typically the third best monitor. In other words, TE first, precordial Doppler second, and end-tidal nitrogen third. It's not used as frequently because it requires a separate mass spec module, and you have to buy it. Um, so in, in actual answer to your question, as long as you're running 100% oxygen or any mix of oxygen and nitrous oxide, you should appreciate 0% end-tidal nitrogen. In other words, there should not be any nitrogen dissolved in your patient's blood and brought back to your end-tidal gases. Uh, if you begin in training air, then nitrogen is dissolved, and as you all know, it's not highly soluble, and so you should see an increase in the percentage of nitrogen. Um, what was the rest of your question? So if you were running, let's say, 80% uh, oxygen, let's just say you were not doing uh, any nitrous, you were doing 80% oxygen and 20% air, then you'd have a baseline small amount of nitrogen, which would go up. Is that correct, if you had an air embolus? And that is correct, but as a general rule, when one is using entitled nitrogen as a monitor, it's advisable not to run any nitrogen to confuse your signal. You just get better signal to noise and uh, you know, in neuroanesthesia, we do like to do mixes of oxygen and nitrous oxide. It was developed with the assumption, and in these days, the old days, people would do nitrous and morphine as basically their principal anesthetic. Um, it was developed with the assumption that that would, in fact, be the gas mix. That's really helpful. Thanks, Dave. Uh, the other question is you mentioned the importance of increasing inotropy of the right heart to try to push through this air or push it out. Uh, and you may have mentioned, but remind me, what would be the presser of choice? Phenylephrine, you mentioned not being a good one. What would you recommend using in this situation? I would recommend you go straight to your epinephrine. If you don't have dilute epinephrine drawn up, don't worry. Um, you can use small doses. You don't have to use a whole code dose. But if you're using in the 100 mic to 200 mic range, then you're probably right on target. And uh, if you should be so lucky as to have your patient be hypertensive and tachycardic after that, that's a fantastic problem you can fix later. Great. Talk to me about, uh, I've seen in review uh, books for boards, they'll talk about the position of the patient in terms of, I believe, uh, the idea being if you think you do have an air embolus and you don't have a multi-orifice catheter to try to aspirate it, that one option is to put a patient in a position that would place the the apex of the right heart uh, as high as possible, I believe, so that the air would get trapped up there and not in the right ventricular outflow tract. Is that something you would recommend trying? And if so, how would you go about it? Well, unfortunately, the recommended position is the patient's head down and the right side of the patient up. Um, the trouble with this is that it's highly impractical in most 
neurosurgeries, for instance, because the patient's head is typically in pins and moving them precipitously is difficult. At best, you might hope to level out. I'm not entirely clear on whether this would, this might be effective in something like a, like a liver surgery, but there again, or a C-section, there again, moving the patient into a position where they're no longer supine may be very difficult. Uh, it's much more important that the surgeons be able to work to close the aperture than it is to achieve the right position. Great. That sounds right to me. The last thing uh, I want to ask you is I always tell my residents when they're doing a central line that they should think really hard about the difference between a patient who is awake and breathing spontaneously versus a patient who is intubated and receiving positive pressure ventilation in terms of the risk of air embolus. I always tell them to cover their uh, open catheter or needle anytime it's open to the air, but I stress that in a patient receiving positive pressure ventilation, this is even more important. I'm sorry, in a patient who is receiving, who is breathing on their own with negative pressure ventilation, this is even more important. Uh, and I'm wondering if you agree and if that's something you uh, would emphasize to your residents as well. Ha, it's funny. That's never come up in my practice <laughs> since all of the craniotomies in which I thought about this carefully are asleep. Um, but that having been said, of course, you're right, that uh, patients who are breathing spontaneously who generate negative uh, intrapulmonary and thus reduced intrathoracic pressures are at greater risk. Um, probably as a coda to that and something I should have mentioned is the role of PEEP in this situation. So most of us run some PEEP in our uh, in our ventilation uh, setup. And PEEP is probably a preventative to some extent for air entrainment. So in other words, raising your intrathoracic pressures probably transmits to having increased great vein pressures as well. And this may prevent air bubbles from reaching all the way down into the heart. That having been said, one of the things you should institute if you have an active air embolus or obviously a suspected one is you should turn your PEEP off because if your patient should happen to have a PFO, there is some possibility of crossing from the right to the left, particularly in a situation where you have low cardiac output and left-sided pressures are not much higher than right-sided pressures. That can be a disaster. An air stroke is an unfixable problem. All right. Thanks, Dave. That makes a ton of sense. And just as, as we're sitting here talking about it, we're thinking uh, that the PEEP is going to increase your right-sided pressures more theoretically than your left because of the thinner walled right ventricle and therefore potentially push that air, if there is a patent foraminal valley, over to the left, which, as you mentioned, would be devastating. All right. Uh, Dave, any last words? Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's been a, a great topic and a really important one. And uh, I hope to have you and some more members of our neurodivision uh, back on the podcast in the future. Well, thank you very much for having me. Go Team Neuro. All right. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and for Dr. David Mintz, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Please leave comments on the website. Let us know what you thought of this podcast and what other neuroanesthesia and any kind of anesthesia and critical care topics you'd like to hear in the future. Remember, you can leave comments on the website at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. And you can email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com or ACRACpodcast at gmail.com. That's it for today. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. 
Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.